The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, this is Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. We have a real treat today. We're going to be joined by Ronica Dar. She's, I've known this writer for years. She's an old friend. She and I go way back. She's a wonderful writer, a wonderful person. Her novel, Bijou Roy, is highly recommended. That's the story of a second-generation Indian woman who's living in Detroit and finds herself compelled to deal with life and tragedy and romance and love and the changes brought about by displacement. How do we live? How do we adapt? How do we survive? That's all in her book. She writes with the care and the imagination and the sensitivity of a poet. Now, I invited Veronica onto the program to present five books. She chose four books and a movie. Five works to lower our blood pressure. Who doesn't need that? Other, <laughs> other than my wife, I guess, whose blood pressure is always too low when she goes to the doctor, and mine is too high. And yet, on the surface, I'm the calm one, and she is cayenne pepper. Maybe we tamp down too much. Maybe that's my maybe that's my problem. We keep the lid on too tight. The blood is boiling inside. I don't know. That's another topic. Maybe we'll have to have a uh, medical expert on to help us with that one. Today, let's enjoy this conversation with the great American author Ronica Dar and check out her selections. They were a, a great mix. I had not even heard of four of them. All of them sound fascinating. We'll be talking through that later. What's interesting here, one of the interesting things about having an author on the program, I think we, as she and I discussed this, I think both of us gradually realize that she's chosen five very different books, but they all have the same central concerns and they all share the same major themes of her own writing. Oh, authors. They never really get away from the job, do they? Anyway, I'll come back with the full list at the end of the program. And the links are available at jackwilson.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com, and historyofliterature.com. Hey, speaking of which, you can contact me by leaving a comment on those websites, or you can email me at author at gmail.com. Many thanks for all the feedback, your support and encouragement and comments and questions. All the other feedback are much appreciated. I'm responding to all of them myself, or at least I try to. You get an email back from Jack. That's an email I actually wrote, not my intern. Try to respond to everything, although sometimes I'm a little slow. I may miss a few things. 
things get too busy. Anyway, we've got some good episodes lined up. Our fall of the Roman Republic show is on the way, as is another literary draft with the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Okay, let's listen now to my conversation with Ronica Dar. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, I'm joined now by my guest, Ronica Dar. Ronica, welcome to the History of Literature. It's great to be here, Jack. This is very exciting. So, you've chosen some works for us today, four books in a movie that will help lower our blood pressure. Now, I can't actually remember if this was a, a topic that I proposed or one that you came up with or one that we developed after we saw what your list was. It started with your idea about having something for the new year, because we were talking in December, and something that would... That's right. Like five books that would bring in the new year, which when I pick them, all seem to have the lowest common denominator of being awfully lyrical and quiet works. I do remember that now. We talked about this around the holidays, which are always hectic. And I was kind of <laughs> looking ahead to the new year and thinking the new year is going to be just as hectic. Are you finding your blood pressure in need of lowering? <laughs> I think I did a lot of preemptive work on that because before this set of five, I had a whole other set of five, including... Actually, that graphic novel of the proof that you have on your blog, too. Ah, right. um, and that had, that had done some considerably good work. And Seabald, that was the, the one author I didn't put on this list that when you mentioned it, if you remember, I said immediately, like, well, Seabald has to be on the list. That's right. But he didn't make it in the end. He had done his job by then. So Right. Right. Well, it's, <laughs> it's great. And, you know, one of the themes of the history of literature, I've spent a lot of time talking about whether literature is is as useful now as it was, or if it's being used in the same way as it was 20 or 30 years ago, mainly because of mm. the rise of the internet and phones and all the distractions that we have. And there's something great about carving out your uh, time in your day in order to relax with a, a book or a film and for that to do the, the kind of psychic work that it needs to do. So let's talk about your choices and we can uh, talk through 
what kind of impact they have on us as readers. Mm -hmm. The first thing you, you proposed is a poem by Elizabeth Alexander, and it was a poem that was written for Obama's presidential inauguration. It's come out now as a book, um, and I think there's several different versions of it. One of them is illustrated, and it's called Praise Song for the Day. What drew you to put that one on your list? A few different reasons. One is I just have a very long fondness for Elizabeth Alexander, who was one of my teachers at Chicago. But also with this election year upon us, kind of reflecting on the last several years and coming back to this poem gave me a little bit more hope on this round, if that makes any sense, because I think this is one of the weirdest elections I've lived through. Yes. I guess we have the the chance to make history again with Hillary, who is, at the time of this recording, she's apparently the front runner for the nomination mm -hmm. on the Democratic mm -hmm. side. But there really is something about the poem that that reminded me of of something special that happened eight years ago. I was at that inauguration, and it was a day to set aside everything that had come before in the campaign. And, and everyone knew that, you know, eventually... Obama would become familiar as a president and would be criticized as any president would be. But there was just this feeling in D.C. that it was a momentous day for America, that mm -hmm. this slaveholding society and segregation and all that had come before, it was really kind of incredible. I think it sort of surprised everybody that all of a sudden we were inaugurating an African-American president. And I, mm -hmm. I feel like this was really captured in her poem. That, and it also just celebrates all of the, like one of my favorite stanzas has this phrase of figuring it out at kitchen tables and really celebrate this idea of the American as someone who's, you know, like a real self-educated, self-motivated individual. Right. I love the, I love the imagery here. I love the, I love the stanza that says a woman and her son wait for the bus. A farmer considers mm -hmm. the changing sky. A teacher says, take out your pencils, begin. All three are talking about transition and, and change and expectations. And makers and people whose professional lives are really service-oriented. Right. They're really universal as well. That's the other thing I like, that you know, we've all been that student in the classroom being told mm -hmm. to take out our pencils. We've all waited for the bus. Right. Um, I think that it also has resonated with me moving back to Detroit, where there's always in the air some talk of manufacturing kind of reminded me a little bit of philip levine who's one of my favorite poets mm -hmm. who has that same detroit yep. hands-on um diego rivera mural you know let's let's celebrate the people who have worked let's celebrate the labor that they've put into this it's a great poem it was, it was a great choice and i was glad that you chose it so i could revisit it i love it i hope everyone reads this one okay so let's move on to the second one uh, the second pick you chose was one I had not heard of before uh, called Aleutian Sparrow by Karen Hess. Mm. And this is a young adult book set in World War II. Now, the interesting thing to me about this one when I was reading the description of it is we all know about the, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and a lot of the aftermath of that. This book is actually about another attack, the attack on the Aleutian Islands off the coast of Alaska. And I didn't realize mm -hmm. this, that the the U.S. military had then removed the native Aleuts and relocated them a thousand miles away elsewhere in Alaska, taking them away from their homeland. And I guess they were doing that for their their own protection. That was the the excuse that was made anyway. Maybe it was mm -hmm. something else going on. But how does how does this book come at that story? 
you know, it humanizes that experience of being displaced at so many different levels. The one that I found especially engaging was just how this shift in environment completely dictated. I mean, this tribe just fell apart. They had no longer had access to all the things they were used to in the forest or in their environment. So their food, they were like, what, what will we eat? So for me, that disruption and that connection that we have to our very environment and what's local when we're moved from it, at least for this small community, just was like metaphorically very interesting to me because we read about these displacements all the time. And this just did such a lovely job of making it, of, of humanizing it. Just, right. just like every sense of how awful that kind of displacement would be. And I thought that it would, it wasn't just about the politics of it, but that very human element. I mean, these were these young girls and just kind of before they knew anything, confused by everything. And I read somewhere that the, they had actually lived there for 9,000 years. Right. I mean, these strong roots, strong roots and traditions that just didn't translate well to the new place, which as, you know, the child of immigrants, I'm always thinking about that. Um, like how much of this nostalgia my parents' generation has for, or my mother, really. I can't speak for the entire generation, but um, has for this place of home, you know, her childhood where she hasn't been in ages. Again, something I've been thinking about because I am back in my original village and I totally understand now that bond and attachment and it's that familiarity, right? Like I can walk five miles in my subdivision and all my old trick-or-treat routes, <laughs> right. blindfolded now, just blindfolded. And it's a joy, that kind of ease. Right. That, that I find extremely, I've, I've gotten very attached to that. And that, so in reading this book, and I just thought it was lovely that she had chosen this form for what has been classified as a young adult novel. Each page is a little kind of flash fiction piece in a way, um, but it is written as poetry, so... You know, on the, the theme of dislocation, I mean, one of the things that I've found is we're all dealing with the change that's brought about just by the passage of time, you know, and, and things mm -hmm. move very quickly now and, and things aren't the same. I'm sure you're finding this as well that, you know, a lot, of, a lot has changed in your childhood home as well as a lot being familiar. And one of the things that I deal with is not living where you grew up, even though I know that things there have changed, there is this element of familiar familiarity that mm -hmm. would in some ways be comforting that you could at least have that. At least, right? In the chaos, in the chaos, like you don't know who is really making decisions that are trickling down to affect you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So this also, um, the narrator here is someone who's at a, a real formative period of her life, right? She's a young uh, a teenager herself, or I don't know mm -hmm. if it's the narrator, but it's the the protagonist, and it seems it is the like narrator. yeah, okay, three years at for someone at that age, it seems like it would be a a very uh, powerful experience as she's also trying to go through the process of of growing up herself. Mm -hmm. Is the tone angry or bewildered or or all of the above? It's it's mostly sort of bittersweet in a way because. A lot of the things that are happening aren't being processed. This is probably going to go straight to some of the parts of Bijou Roy, but she's not, she doesn't have the emotional intelligence to process a lot of it. So the 
the poetry, the the form itself is very simple poetry. It's not, you know, and I, I wondered actually, this is a point of ignorance on my part, if there was a tradition of this sort of writing that Karen Huss was emulating mm-hmm. when she chose to write it in this form. But it's just lovely and simple. It's, it's um, you know, it doesn't have a tone like Beowulf does, although it has this kind of form like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say in the end, because some are, of course, lost along the way, but some are returned home, and that's a kind of lovely ending. I have to say, one of the reasons that I, I chose to read this book in the first place was I was very interested in how, ta-da, a writer could imagine and it's such a, something so other to their own experience culturally. Right. 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 So she's not only reaching back in time, but to... Um, a culture and a community that she wasn't personally affiliated with. And that's something I, I just still wonder about when, you know, we talk about writing what we know and, and all the politics around writing characters that are just not yours. Yeah. And I looked at uh, Karen Hess. I was not familiar with her, with her works, but she's written books about the depression and the, the Ku Klux Klan in Vermont and, uh, an 11-year-old, this was a, apparently based on a true story, an 11-year-old boy who stowed away on Captain Cook's voyages and a girl raised by dolphins. I'm guessing that none of that was... <laughs> I'm guessing that Karen, Karen was likely not raised by dolphins. Um, okay, so let's look at your third pick, which is I Lala. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing all of these right. Poems of mm-hmm. Lal Dead. So this apparently is by a... a someone I was not familiar with, a Kashmiri mystic. And how did this book come your way? This book has been um, in my way for many, many years. Lalithev is uh, a figure in Kashmiri history that my mother even still refers to. She's kind of a legend um, on my, so my mom's side is Kashmiri and this is one of their patron saints and they sing her songs. These Poems are called Vux, V-A-K-H-S, and that word from the Sanskrit translates as like sayings or tellings, but these were all songs um, originally, and, and many of them are extended into, into much longer songs um, that are sung at all kinds of events or cultural gatherings, and so I've been obsessed with her for a little bit because my mother has referred to her so much, and she brought me a short collection of her work from India probably yikes like 10 or 15 years ago and so since then I just kept coming back to her because um, I was very compelled by again the form right these are they're just very tiny tiny sometimes four line little verses to meditate upon and then this particular edition um, is when I read it I just felt that very standing on the shoulders of giants feeling because it was such a thoughtful translation of the, some of the same poems that were in the tiny collection that my mother had bought me. And so to see them and the language translated and attended to so carefully um, so that in some parts he's even offering alternate versions of the same poem. And just, it's been lovely to think about uh, not just what gets lost in translation, but what you can still capture and then the fact that she's, you know, 700 years ago. That's right. She she lived uh, from, I've got it here, the, from 1320 to 1392. And when I, I saw that she was 
you know, trained in spiritual disciplines and devotional practices. And I was sort of expecting these to be somewhat ephemeral and, and abstract. And instead, I was astounded by how personal and autobiographical some of them are, how how tangible. Blunt, sensual in, in many instances, and, and they're fierce. There's a kind of, you know, there's it's, it's a completely different tone from Elysian Sparrow, right. in my opinion. There's a the way I read it anyway, I, I maybe project a lot on it, but it's just, it's a strong voice, very strong voice. Even when she's questioning, she's questioning with authority. Do you have any good examples to read for us? I have one that I love. Um, and again, this has a little bit to do with my relationship to how the original one I read changed when I read this new version of it. But this is, again, it's just four lines, so I'll read it quickly. I wore myself out looking for myself. No one could have worked harder to break the code. I lost myself in myself and found a wine cellar. Nectar, I tell you. There were jars and jars of the good stuff and no one to drink it. (laughs) Okay. The first thing that is amazing about that is I chose four of these to read and that was the first one on my list. Stop! That one just knocked me out. I My just, old uh, friend Jack. <laughs> <laughs> that one just knocked me out. I thought it was. I Isn't thought it was awesome? great. It was so fresh. The voice here is is so great. I mean, that's that's. I'll read a couple of the ones that I chose as well. And the thing that I just loved was the voice. You know, it was really yeah. someone that I. I just wanted to spend time with. Here's one that I chose. Uh, it says, I saw a sage starving to death, a leaf floating to earth on a winter breeze. I saw a fool beating his cook. And now I'm waiting for someone to cut the love cord that keeps me tied to this crazy world. <laughs> I mean, don't you want to know what's going on with her from this? And you, right. you, I feel like I feel like I can trust her. And then she's got this one. I love the the attitude in this one. Uh, what the books taught me, I've practiced. What they didn't teach me, I've taught myself. I've gone into the forest and wrestled with the lion. I didn't get this far by teaching one thing and doing another. I love this. And then, you know, you couple that with the with the stories that I've heard where, you know, this is a woman who suffered tremendously at the right. hands of her mother-in-law and then renounced everything and, and is, is really, is dramatized such that all I see is a woman sort of running through the street singing these and they're so short. (laughs) I don't think they're that much longer in Kashmiri. That was the thing. Um, When I read these, when I read the, you know, the description of her and her life, they said, you know, she was in an unhappy marriage. And I thought, how many people from the 14th century do we get an insight (laughs) into their marriage? It's just great. (laughs) Well, the trope of the difficult mother-in-law is really... (laughs) I think that might be the oldest trope, (laughs) at least in South Asian literature. (laughs) And then (laughs) Italian literature, too, I think. And then there's this. um, Of course. And there's this. uh, This one I like, too. Don't think I did all this to get famous. I never cared for the good things of life. I always ate sensibly. I knew hunger well (laughs) and sorrow and God. This is just. Uh, That's what 
I said, like kind of fierce. Like if you come at it the right way, there it's sort of Beyonce. There's a little yes. Yes. She's serving it in a lot of these. But there's there's one I want to read to you because I'll read you the translation I read originally. Okay. Um and it was the last one in that collection and it was lovely. And it's it's sweeter. It's not as it's it's much sweeter, but it goes playfully, you hid from me. All day I looked. Then I discovered I was you. And the celebration of that began. Uh, so I love that. I yeah. love that. And yeah. But then here's the other translation of it that's also kind of lovely. Wrapped up in yourself, you hid from me. All day I looked for you. And when I found you hiding inside me, I ran wild, playing, now me, now you. Ooh. Yeah, they're both good. They're both good. Trying to decide which one I like better. I can't. I like them both. They're both good. The second one uh, reminds me a little bit of that Japanese haiku that I love. That's just uh, naked on a naked horse in pouring rain. Mm. And it's just the celebration of life and, you know, excitement. And I love that. And I also love remembering your son's relationship to that haiku. <laughs> they, were much, they were so little then. Yeah. They, uh, little kids have this. But I would say that... Uh, Lal Dead is appeals to the more cynical adult side of me as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the translation you recommend is which one? Do, Ranjit Hoskot. Ranjit Hoskot, right? And that's yes. I think in a Penguin edition, right? It is a beautiful Penguin classic. Okay, we'll put a link to that on the on the website. Let's look at the next one um, by Takwan Soho. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I think so. Again, this is, it's funny, you know, I'm sitting in my library and looking at my shelves, which are, as you know, you know, known me for years, kind of really filled with contemporary novels <laughs> and, and nothing, I think nothing I've chosen here. <laughs> yes. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. This is more I guess, from the I past. I guess all of those have raised my blood pressure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's well, that, know. that might be another topic. I don't know if that's that will go under the uh, <laughs> the literary envy uh, topic. Um. <laughs> I just I always had a preference. I remember, you know, you were talking to my writer friends in college, and you're like, I I just really want to read what people are writing right now. Right. It's weird. I've changed a lot in that respect, but. Yeah. Here we go. Sorry. Sorry. Tangent. I'm kind of a time traveler, especially recently. I have not been reading as much contemporary literature. Well, and actually, this is a good transition to the unfettered mind, because as I think about it again, and you at this middle-aged age, so many of these characters I have romanticized to no end. And this, this is that kind of writer. And I was just recently, at this age, trying to humanize him and say, okay, this is just another, he's not a god. But his words are so lovely and so godlike that it's hard to remember that he was, you know, like one of us. He's, so he was a, a Zen master, and he was writing a lot mm-hmm. for samurai and shoguns. This is, um, what are the years on this? The 17th century, I think. Uh, 16th. I, 16th century. And I have to yeah. say, I, I took one look at the cover of this book and I couldn't believe that I hadn't heard of it before. It's just, it seems like it's right up my alley. And how did you, yeah. how did you discover it? 
this was one of uh, many books that were sadly being thrown out of a library at a school that I was working at. And I saw them and thought, especially um, this one. And there was another lovely book that I also considered instead of this one by a karate master. Um, so clearly that section of the Dewey Decimal System had just been gone through. So I picked out this one from that. So I have absolutely, I'm completely ignorant on who this man is and, and his role in Japanese history, which is a real, um, that's where I'm beginning. I loved, however, I loved everything about what they said about his life and his passions. You know, my edition starts out describing him as Zen monk, calligrapher, painter, poet, gardener, tea master, and perhaps inventor of the pickle that even today retains his name. Yeah. Just, <laughs> you know, you go. Yeah. You be multivalent. <laughs> some, people, some people just know how to live. Um, you know? <laughs> all of those things, you know, and again, those, you know, in addition to the writing, and we'll talk about that in a second, but all of those activities are activities that are kind of in line with what we were talking about earlier of making things, mm -hmm. um, gardening and, and being a tea master and, and calligraphy. And, you know, they really all are about lowering your blood pressure or reflecting or taking time out to do something carefully and slowly, almost as a way of achieving something spiritual that mm -hmm. goes well beyond, you know, the actual cup of tea that you're about to drink. There's more of right. of the person that goes into it. And there's more, I guess it's kind of a cleansing effect of pausing to do something really well in a, in a ritualized way. It's that, but I think it's also very much about establishing your relationship to these objects. Right. You know, whether it's like an egg you're breaking for an omelet or the sword you're polishing we have relationships with all these things that are just as, to me, interesting and compelling as our relationships to animate objects, and there are tools. And what's he doing in the unfettered mind? Are these letters to Yeah, to in my edition, there, there are two that were apparently, yep, exactly that, letters to Samurai that he had written, which I just found interesting. I mean, one of the things that I love about it is the, is the language, and again, it's probably a, a matter of translation, but the first letter... Um, is titled as an essay, The Mysterious Record of Immovable, Immovable Wisdom. Right. The Mysterious Record of Immovable Wisdom. I mean, who doesn't want to read that? Right, right. <laughs> um, and, and it's difficult. It's, you know, he's very much just sort of offering, it's, it's a very meditative letter, and he's just kind of defining different words as he goes along, and so it's, it's a bit of a, a treatise like that, but also... There are, are, are minor anecdotes. The karate book was lovely because it was a memoir, and so it was a very narrative. This is more, it's not stream of consciousness. There's more structure to it than that, but it's very much like a, a little lecture. And it, I, I'm guessing that the, the lessons of martial arts or the swordsmanship or the things that he's talking about to the samurai, it's easy to apply those things to our own lives or the work that we do or exactly. I found it like very easy to move from, okay, I don't have a sword to, but I do have you know, even a work at the letterpress or the, the writing we do manually or the food we're making. But um, the, the thing I loved about it is that he has these lovely sort of aphorisms about 
how to do all that work. So the word I learned from this and the karate book was celerity, and I've been obsessed with that word. What was the word? Celerity. Yeah. Okay. It has what? nothing to do with celery, although that's where most of us go first. <laughs> right. And it just means swiftness, like the swiftness of action, or the swiftness with which you can execute an action without really pausing to think about it. You're just in that zone and you're doing it and you're not, in my instance, I always often will, will muck something up as soon as I start overthinking it, right? But if you're in the, in the zone and you're just doing it, he talks a lot about that. Wow. I love that. I love that. You know, I just read the Bhagavad Gita, which I did for an episode of the History of Literature, and it has a similar kind of instruction for people. It's the, you know, separating yourself from all of your your worldly aims and your goals and just focusing on the, the, the spiritual service of the action itself. Yeah, and making sure that you're all aligned and in good energy so that you are, you know, passing that on. Right. Pure, non-toxic. Um, but it's, I mean, these are not, you know, when you're waiting for your oil change, always easy things to practice. I will think about them and kind of chuckle, but I'm not sure I'm really practicing severing the edge between before and after all the time. And it's it's lovely to think of the one moment and the present moment is the only moment. Again, I just love reading authors who will just sort of straightforwardly define something and then very quickly say, maybe that's not possible. Right. So I, I love I love that. And so anyway, here, and he does that. He does that a lot in here. But here he is kind of defining right-mindedness uh, as a matter of extreme importance. Its substance is none other than the principle of heaven, which gives life to all things. And this is the part I love. When this is acquired by the human body, it is called one's nature. Its other names are virtue, the way, human-heartedness, probity, and propriety. While the name changes according to the situation, and though its function is different, in substance, it is only one thing. And I love that, just thinking about um, who we are by nature. That's a great passage, and I, I love the the idea that he's sending this to samurai knights and that they actually reflect upon it and read it and absorb it and that that he has become a a source of this wisdom. I mean, can you imagine if you sent a letter like that to uh, a politician or somebody and told them this is going to help me? I mean, they'd throw it in the in the garbage, right? But... Politicians might just misunderstand every word. <laughs> <laughs> so I had two stories about him that I wanted to share. One, you've already uh, stolen my thunder that he invented a kind of pickled radish. Um, <laughs> which really jumped out at me as well as uh, as something great. And then the other one comes from the moment of his death. Yes, oh, I love this. Please tell this. This is my favorite. So the, the story is that he painted the Chinese character for Dream and then laid mm-hmm. down his brush and died. Yeah. There's just something about him that when you read about him, he seems like somebody who is is slight visionary or that he sees things that the rest of us don't, that he's... He's purified himself mm. to a point where he's getting glimpses of truths that the rest of us mm-hmm. aren't aren't uh, afforded. Mm-hmm. Okay, so your fifth choice is a film, Samsara. Tell us about that one. So that was the first of 
uh, Ron Frick's movies that I had seen. I had uh, seen it in New York when it came out on the big screen, and it was just this lovely, uh, immersive sensory experience. There's no dialogue in the film at all. It's all scored by Kronos Quartet, I believe. And so it's kind of this intense, you know, that music of the celestial heavens throughout, and and it's just a series of images that are that put together a kind of narrative wonderful watching it the first time i think because you're just being led on this unknown journey through all over the world through different uh communities and just looking at different experiences not all of what is filmed is is meant i think to connect or echo but it sort of does ultimately the title of the film is again another old sanskrit word that we often bat around some thought of of this, this chaotic planet again and everything that is going on in an instant everywhere. And I thought that this film does a beautiful job of showing us those things with the images um, and letting you kind of build your narrative on your own in a way that couldn't be captured the same way, I think, in, in words. That's what I was going to ask you about. So it, it was I read that it was shot in 25 countries and that it's more of a collage or compilation than a conventional narrative. And I was wondering if your mind, as you were watching it, was trying to read a story into it, or um, it it doesn't sound like they necessarily had in mind that everyone would have the same experience, but that you'd be engaging with it in a way that would, you know, you'd be imposing your own ideas and reflections Mm -hmm. onto it. Is that that the experience you had when you were watching it? I the first time through, I just, I was very, I, I was an easy audience member, like just completely acquiesced to, I will go wherever this film takes me. Um, when I was reviewing it, and so this is after some years uh, putting together this list, it reminds me again of what I love about film. And I'm always curious with literature when you're reading it, sort of the visualization factor and how it's impossible to communicate in so many ways to each other what we are seeing when we are reading. So when I read a book and I sometimes will randomly, you know, you have the whole setting in your head, but how do you, how could you possibly translate that to some other reader? Do you know what I mean? Like we all have these our fingerprints on our, on the way we read literature, but this film does what I think like so many things that are impossible to do otherwise. So you, you're, it does this crazy thing with time um, and with setting, I mean, with place, so that you get to experience in this short film, you know, something that would take centuries and lifetimes to to see otherwise, for me anyway, with my resources. Right. <laughs> um, and so it's just a very efficient way to me of kind of lending a perspective on what that is, like what we do imagine when we imagine like everything that is possible or and then there are so many images where you're, you know, you'll never experience that in your own life. And so to have a sense of that existing, to me, was profoundly, profoundly influential. And are these images of nature or people or crowds or, or all of the above? All of it. Yeah. All of the above. All of the above. And I saw they use some camera techniques like they slow the speed down or they, mm-hmm. they probably focus on the tiny or, or other things that that make you see things in a new way. Yeah. Very lyrical. Here's what I'm guessing. I haven't watched this. I 
I think I would probably approach it where I would be forcing myself to watch it, thinking kind of like how I make myself exercise and thinking uh-huh. I'm, I'm going to feel better when this is over. Does that sound like like how I should be walking into this? Yeah, almost like you're going to a concert, I, I would say, you know, more than anything else. And I think that is a, another thing that all these pieces have in common for me is that, you know, I love music and I'm almost always listening to it. And these are, maybe this could be the other name for the list is like, these are a few things you can do when you don't have your radio or iPod or whatever it is that you're listening to your music on. Cause these are places I will go to kind of get that same pleasure that you get from music and short stories. And maybe you're not going into some very explicit self reflection with the stuff but it's working it's magic somehow and so samsara does that i think beautifully i I would not i when i was watching it again the second time and this was you know with headphones and netflix i didn't watch the whole thing at once it was too intense and there were too many things that needed attending to otherwise right it's troubling too because it's not all good news that's interesting so let's talk about the the selections as a whole i mean our theme was the lowering of blood pressure, and I can see where all of them do that. And and they're, as we said, they're all quiet books or a reflective film. And and the lyrical side of them kind of stands out how thoughtful they are. I didn't really notice this that they also have that kind of edge. They have that that darkness, or there may be a grace notes of hope and optimism. But there's also mm-hmm. getting back to the Elizabeth Alexander. She doesn't shrink mm-hmm. from the pain and the struggle that have led up to the moment of celebration either. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that your novel has that theme as well. These are, I think you've chosen five uh, reflections on Bijou Roy. <laughs> I think, I, is this all I'll ever do with my, with my writing? I'll just, just keep revisiting the same one, <laughs> one hit wonder. You know, it's funny when you spoke earlier about Illusion Sparrow and the child's idea of a few years being very long and it's been five years since Bijou was published and, and longer since I wrote it. And so I, even if I look at it now, it's, it's returned to that place of, I'm not, I'm not self-conscious about it, but I'm also so happy to have moved forward as a writer. There are, there are so many risks that I took that I didn't even know I was taking with that book. Right. Um, and, and so it, it was, I don't think I'll ever be able to reproduce something like that exactly. I don't right. know that I would even want to. Um, but did you think that that, because when I look at the language of that book again, it's pretty straightforward, you know? That's one of the things my mother loved about it. She's like, I love this. It's so easy to read. <laughs> <laughs> she was so worried. She was so worried she, that it was going to be the understand it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, Ronica Dar, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Jack. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Okay, wasn't that great? She is so awesome. Everyone should go buy her book. It's Bijou Roy by Ronica Dar. Now, here's Ronica's list. She chose Praise Song for the Day by Elizabeth Alexander, Lucian Sparrow by Karen Hess, I Lala, The Poems of Lal Dead, translated by Ranjit Hoskot, 
The Unfettered Mind by Takwan Soho, and the film Samsara, directed by Ron Frick. If you enjoyed this episode, please let people know. A quick review on iTunes would do it, or just click on the five stars. Post it on Facebook, tweet, email. However you get the news out, I'm easy. Go crazy. And I hope you keep your blood pressure low, but not too low. Keep it moderate, a gentle simmer. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.